Welcome to a patient safety podcast from Crico. Crico is the group of companies providing medical professional liability malpractice coverage and patient safety services to the Harvard medical community. For many in the medical profession, some of the basics of law and malpractice claims are a little mysterious. We know there are elemental questions that must be answered yes in order to have a successful claim. Did the defendant provider have a duty of care to the patient? Did the patient suffer harm? Was the defendant negligent? And was the negligence the cause of the patient's harm? We'll focus on the issue of negligence in this edition of our podcast. The key question about negligence is whether or not the provider failed to meet the standard of care. But how do we know what the standard of care is when we look at an individual case? To help answer this question, we are joined now by two experts from both professions involved, Dr. Carla Ford, an internist and consultant for Crico, and John Reardon, a defense attorney and partner with Hamill, Marson, Dunn, Reardon, and Shea PC in Boston. Carla, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us here today, Tom. Let's start off with the legal definition of standard of care. Uh, John, what's that? Well, it's the million-dollar question, Tom, and it's why we're here today. I've been working with the Crico insured since the 1980s, and I would say in almost every matter that I've handled for them, the first question that the doctors ask us, or the nurses for that matter, or the physician's assistants want to know is, what is the standard of care? Who's judging me? Why am I being put in this position? Um, and I think, Kali, you that's the type of question that you have to deal with as an expert reviewing these cases for Crico, correct? Absolutely. I mean, people ask, you know, is it written down somewhere? What is, what is the standard of care? And, and it isn't. Uh, it's basically established at a trial through expert testimony where each side has their own expert and the jury is essentially instructed to listen to both sides and sort of see who they believe more. And also, do they believe the defendants? But what happens, as Kyla noted at trial, is each side has expert witnesses come in and the experts actually tell the jury what the standard of care is. And there's a little bit of a competition there. But what I could do now, Tom, if it's okay with you, and it might be helpful as an as a initial step in this discussion to tell the individuals who are listening what the jury is told by the judge about how they evaluate the standard of care. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so this is, it's a little bit of an abbreviated version, but it's exactly what the jurors would hear in the Commonwealth. So I'm reading it as it's a physician who's being sued in this case, but it's the same set of standards applied to a nurse practitioner, a nurse, physician's assistant, healthcare worker, mental health care worker, whatever the case may be. So the judge tells this to the jury at the end of the case. So they're told the following. The physician's responsibility is to exercise the degree of skill and care of the average qualified physician practicing in the defendant's area of specialty. Part of the standard of care is that, in cases of doubt, the physician will use his or her judgment in accordance with accepted medical practice for a physician in the same area of specialty. The fact that, in retrospect, the physician's judgment was incorrect is not, in and of itself, enough to prove medical malpractice or negligence. Doctors are allowed a wide range, and whether or not the judge puts in the word wide is a debate we have in each case, 
but doctors are allowed a range in the reasonable exercise of professional judgment, and they are not liable for mere errors of judgment, so long as the judgment they made does not represent a departure from the requirements of accepted medical practice. In other words, a doctor is liable for errors or judgment only if those errors represent a departure from the standard of care. A doctor is not judged by standards of perfection or excellence or by standards that apply today, but by whether the doctor had and used the knowledge, skill, and care possessed by the average qualified physician in, her special, in his or her specialty at the time of the alleged malpractice. The next instruction that the jurors are told in this is that evidence that a doctor who testified in a case or any other doctor might have undertaken a different course of treatment is not in and of itself that the defendant's treatment was negligent or the deviation from the standard of care. So in many of the cases we do see there is a decision that has to be made. Do they operate or do they observe? Do they give a medication or, or do they not give a medication for a couple days? And just because another doctor would do it differently than you doesn't mean it's a deviation from the standard of care. So Carla, they don't have to be perfect. No, and I think that that's something we really want to reassure our providers about. It isn't malpractice to be wrong at the end of the day when all the tests are in. Uh, it isn't um, malpractice to disagree with your colleague about the best way to treat a patient. Um, certainly there are uh, cases in which there is a clear error. For instance, medication error. Someone prescribed the wrong dose or read the name of the medication wrong. Those things are clear errors. But the vast majority of our cases really come down to clinical judgment. And it's important for providers to realize that they do not need to be perfect. And it is uh, not that you would necessarily agree all the time with your colleagues or that you would adhere to a particular guideline depending upon what the clinical situation is. So I think the important thing is to be thoughtful, to be careful, to follow up on the tests you order so that there are no handoff issues, and then to document what you've done. So the standard has room for variation among providers. Absolutely. That's, that's a key element to this. We talked a little about guidelines. Are guidelines the same thing as a standard of care? So, Tom, guidelines are, are interesting, and, of course, there are more and more of them. Uh, I think someone said the great thing about guidelines is that there are so many to choose from. But, for instance, uh, with regard to uh, screening tests, different associations of physicians may have different recommendations. For instance, the American College of Chess Physicians may have a different recommendation on anticoagulation than the American College of Physicians. So there's uh, a lot of variability. But again, having a considered approach, certainly you want to factor in the guidelines, and, and they're important in terms of clinical care. But they're not hard and fast. And John, have you experienced with this in the courtroom? Yeah, guidelines, in fact, are a, a huge issue in the trial of these matters. I think a good example of it uh, is that we see is PSA testing uh, cases because the guidelines put out by the urological associations may be different than that of the primary care doctors, and you need to be aware of those. So what happens at a trial in a matter like this, if you didn't get a PSA, they'll try to put up the literature and the guidelines promulgated by those institutions or by the department of your hospital saying this is what you should have done. 
whereas there may be uh, other guidelines that are more supportive of your position. So while guidelines do not define the standard of care in and of themselves, they certainly are a tool for the jury to consider and a tool that the experts on both sides will be using to put their position forth. Is the standard different for academic doctors versus community practitioners or, or residents versus attendings? Well, usually by the time cases get fully developed or they get towards trial, all of the parties that were involved have been named. So typically if a resident is named, an attending is also named in that case. But the places that, that you see problems for the residents is primarily a situation where if a, if a patient's status has changed and the resident fails to inform the attending and get input from the attending, then they may be the one that is most uh, liable or negligent in that case. So a good example of that collar is a, a case I've had at a, at a teaching hospital where it was a, a resident working on a patient and uh, the patient, a young uh, individual's patient declined rapidly and the resident went forward with a lumbar puncture on the patient which caused a, uh, a stroke type event to happen with a bad outcome. Now, the resident never informed the attending physicians before taking this step, and the resident got sued in that case. Now, the attending physician came into their support and said it was the exact right decision to make, and they would have done the same thing if they had called them. But in that case, the resident ended up being sued, and the attending didn't because the information was not communicated back and forth. Whereas if they had communicated to the attending, and the attending said, yes, that's the right course to follow, they both would have been involved in the lawsuit at that matter, so just as an example. But it's not correct to say that there's a separate standard of care for residents and a separate standard of care for the same work by attendings? No, at least in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and this has been ruled on by our appellate courts, that when the jury is instructed about how to evaluate them or you solicit your expert testimony, it is the uh, deviation from the standard of care of the average qualified physician practicing in that specialty. And that's why it's important for the residents. You know, they're working under the direction of an attending physician, and it's important for them to involve them in, the, in their treatment of the patients. You had mentioned briefly earlier, Tom, about academic institutions and community hospitals. And in fact, the standard is the same for both of those institutions, just like with the residents. It's the average qualified physician or neurosurgeon, or primary care physician, or nurse, or doctor who are practicing. That's the standard that they're held to, whether it's at a major academic institution or a community hospital out in the suburbs. I wanted to ask, John, actually, is, is there a captain of the ship uh, philosophy, or is that, does that hold in Massachusetts, the sort of captain of the ship? Yeah, what a, what a I mean, on-point question when we talk about the residents. And it, and it makes you feel bad when the residents, uh, interns, medical students come in to see you and they say, well, I, you know, I wasn't in charge, I wasn't attending, I wasn't attending, so I mustn't be involved, I mustn't be responsible for this. And it actually can cause a, a lot of stress between the relationship to the individual. But no, in Massachusetts, there is no captain of the ship doctrine. Um, an attending physician is not responsible for the independent decisions made by a resident on a patient that they're responsible for. The only time uh, an attending gets in trouble for the actions of a resident is if they give the resident 
too much authority beyond which they're qualified to do. So again, if we want to take the classic brain surgery, if, if a neurosurgeon gave a first-year resident in their six-year program too much leeway in performing a, a brain surgery, they may be held negligent for doing that. But they're not negligent for the performance of any uh, medical decision or treatment rendered appropriate for the level of training that the individual is at. I do have a good example, though, Tom, that I like to give in terms of uh, medical malpractice. Two, two things. Kyla sees this all the time. So many of the physicians, they care so much about what they do that if they have a bad outcome, they automatically really get down on themselves and think they must have done something wrong. Well, the case law, and I, I, won't, and I won't read it now, but part of the jury instructions specifically say to the jury, just because there was a bad outcome doesn't mean the doctor did something wrong. You can't read negligence into that, which I think is very important. And the second example I'd like to mention is, and it's a good example, of an individual who had a kidney cancer and they had a PET scan done in February to see if there was any metastasis and the PET scan came back completely normal of the reading. Less than a year later, unfortunately, they uh, developed esophageal cancer and they had another PET scan done to evaluate the esophageal cancer and at that time, the individual interpreting it said, geez, in that uh, uptake at the esophageal junction, increase from February from when we looked at it a year ago and so meaning it was there back then and they were sued and they say geez if you had told us about the esophageal uptake a year ago we would have been able to cure this cancer. Unfortunately we went to trial on that case and it was fine for them not to mention the uptake back a year ago at the esophageal junction because 25 percent of the people have uptake because of spicy food they ate the night before, and there was no indication that the physician should have mentioned it at that point in time. So just, I think, two good examples of things that people feel bad about or think they can get sued for, but the standard of care, as we've been talking about today, ended up saying it was okay for them to practice in that manner. To respond to what John just said, by the time we get to trial, everyone has retrospect. Everyone can look back and see what happened, but it's critically important when uh, evaluating a case as I do or as our experts do is to understand what did they know at the time? What was the information that was available? Who were they talking to? Were the test results back yet? And so all these cases, you know, five, six years from now, everyone's looking backwards. That's not what's important. What's important is, you know, the care as it developed, the story as it developed for the providers. And I, I think I just want, you know, to say in conclusion, I want to just reassure our providers that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be right. Uh, you need to take your training and your uh, abilities as a diagnostician and bring a thoughtful, careful approach to the patient. You do your best. You uh, are careful that the loose ends don't fall, that you've checked up on the things you said you would, uh, checked up on the test results that you ordered, and arrived at at a differential diagnosis and then a, a provisional diagnosis and treatment. As long as those components have been met, uh, you really don't have to be perfect. And I think it's important to realize that. And of course, uh, be sure to document what your thought process was. 
Well, thank you. Dr. Carla Ford, internist and consultant for Crico, the group of companies owned by and serving the Harvard medical community with professional liability, claims management, and patient safety services. And thank you, John Reardon, partner with defense firm Hamill, Marson, Dunn, Reardon, and Shea, PC, in Boston. I'm Tom Agello. This has been a patient safety podcast from Crico. Crico is the group of companies providing medical professional liability malpractice coverage and patient safety services to the Harvard medical community. More information about Crico and efforts in the Harvard system to create the safest healthcare in the world is available on our website, www.rmf.harvard.edu.